Welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast on U.S. immigration policy in the era of Donald Trump. I'm Alex Alenikoff, director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City. And I'm Deb Amos. I'm a correspondent for National Public Radio, and I report on immigration. Deb, throughout these episodes of Entry Denied, a word has kept appearing that I think we need to address directly, COVID. Yes, and this is our last episode of this series, so we are going to take on COVID head on and what it means for immigration, because a lot of what Trump set out to do, he was able to do as a response to the pandemic. Reduce legal immigration, cut off the flow of refugees, stop asylum at the southwest border. You know, at the same time, the pandemic has shown immigrants in a new light. I mean, immigrants are overrepresented among people who are doing essential jobs in the United States. And these include undocumented workers who work in agriculture, picking crops on California farms. They're undocumented, but essential. And there are also 30,000 DACA recipients in healthcare jobs responding to COVID. I've been working since 6.30 this morning. It is right now... 1230 at night. For Florida paramedic Aldo Martinez, long days and high stress are the new normal. Martinez is one of an estimated nearly 30,000 immigrant physicians, nurses, technicians and aides who have U.S. work permits through DACA. And immigrant communities have been particularly hard hit by the virus, as we'll discuss later in this episode. But let's start with the ways in which the Trump administration has used the crisis to get to other goals. For example, we've all heard many times Donald Trump ban immigration from China in January 2020. He said it saved millions of lives. You know, Deb, that claim has been repeatedly debunked. Uh, COVID was already present in the United States at the time of the China ban. And more importantly, the ban has huge exceptions in it for U.S. citizens, green card holders, and others. And according to data from April of this year, 40,000 people have entered from China after the January ban. Now, even so, the ban remains in place for most travelers. And Trump added Iran and then Europe to the list and then Brazil. And then he went a step further. In April, Trump issued a proclamation that denied entry to any person seeking to come to the U.S. on an immigrant visa. And it didn't apply to people who already had green cards. So it basically stopped all legal immigration to the United States. We have a solemn duty to ensure these Unemployed Americans regain their jobs and their livelihoods. Therefore, in order to protect American workers, I will be issuing a temporary suspension of immigration into the United States. By pausing immigration, we'll help put unemployed Americans first in line for jobs as America reopens. So important. It would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced with new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. It's striking that this order was justified not as a health regulation, but as an economic measure to save jobs in the United States for American workers. But it's not clear that reasoning works. And here's why. Most of the people coming to the U.S. from overseas with a green card are coming based on a family relationship, not to work. So it's hard not to see the green card ban as a way of simply limiting immigration to the United States rather than about protecting American jobs. Yeah, so let's look at all the measures on the borders. The Trump administration reached agreement with Mexico and Canada to limit movement over the border to so-called essential travelers, and that's citizens, people with green cards, students, and essential workers. You know, for example, those temporary farm workers. 
Now, the Canadian border still remains closed to most traffic. This is even for university students, American students who want to go study in Canada. They cannot cross the border. But the most dramatic action the administration took was regarding people who didn't qualify to enter under the agreements. If they were apprehended trying to enter the U.S. between official ports of entry, they can be picked up and basically expelled from the U.S. without any process at all. You know, this time the justification was health. And in fact, it was the CDC relying on a provision of the public health service law that authorized the Border Patrol to expel people in this way. But again, something else seems to be at work because from the start, the administration has sought to stop the flow of asylum seekers over the southwest border, and they've adopted a wide range of measures. COVID became the silver bullet. The CDC order has basically closed the border with thousands of asylum seekers and hundreds of unaccompanied minors denied entry. And COVID was the silver bullet for Stephen Miller. He's the administration's point person on immigration policy. Reportedly, he'd been looking for a disease that would allow the administration to invoke the health restrictions, and these were written in the 1940s. COVID allowed him to set a policy that prevents legal immigration and asylum claims. There's much, much more we could talk about here about ICE operations during COVID and lawsuits that have been filed to get people released from ICE detention because of the dangers of COVID. But we want to turn to another aspect of the impact of the pandemic, the impact on immigrant communities in the United States. To explore this, we spoke with Eli Dvorkin, editorial and policy director of the Center for an Urban Future. It's a New York City think tank. Vlad Vorkin, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You've co-authored a report called Under Threat and Left Out New York City's Immigrants and the Coronavirus Crisis. Why Under Threat and Left Out? Under Threat because immigrant New Yorkers have really borne the brunt of both the health impacts of this pandemic and the economic impacts. And Left Out because there are really no New Yorkers who are less likely to have accessed government relief so far than immigrants. You write that you interviewed two dozen nonprofits that work closely with immigrant communities. The numbers that you report are staggering. Some 75% of one organization's clients have lost their job. 95% of day laborers are out of work. What does that mean to the recovery of New York, both in the short term and in the long term? Well, immigrants really make New York City work. I mean, they're about 37% of the city's population overall, but nearly half of the workforce. And these effects are absolutely pervasive across the entire city's economy. Immigrants comprise about 70% of all of the janitors and building cleaners in New York who are going to be essential for getting offices open again. Immigrants are over half of all healthcare workers in New York City. But those are a couple of positions or a couple of occupations where immigrants have been at risk of contracting the virus. So not only will it be a long road to help those uh, immigrant workers recover, but their recovery is inextricably linked to the overall uh, health of New York City's economy. Immigrant communities were particularly hard hit by the coronavirus. Why was that? Why were they disproportionately impacted? Well, I think it's really that that dual of vulnerability to the health effects and the economic effects. We're so reliant as a city on immigrants for our frontline workforce. And those are the folks who were most at risk of contracting the virus. We saw that in patterns of uh, positive testing rates and uh, hospitalizations in New York, especially when it peaked back in April. But immigrants are also overrepresented in so many of the hardest hit industries, including personal care, nail salons, restaurants and bars, accommodations, uh, and retail. 
For instance, in Elmhurst, Queens, a heavily immigrant neighborhood, 27% of the whole workforce that lives in that community is in just one of those four industries. We saw similar rates in Corona, Queens, uh, in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, in Highbridge, in the Bronx, in Flushing, all of which are majority immigrant communities and all of which have at least a quarter of their whole workforce clustered in just those four particularly hard-hit industries. Let's talk about this sentence in your report. And yet, they have been almost completely shut out of government programs created to those in need. Why is that? First, I think it's important to understand the composition of the city's immigrant population. New York City is home to about 3.1 million immigrants. But of those 3.1 million, uh, over half a million are undocumented. Another million or approximately million New Yorkers live in mixed status households, meaning that at least one family member is undocumented. And those are the New Yorkers who've had the hardest time accessing relief um, in multiple ways. None of those New Yorkers were getting the $1,200 stimulus check. In addition, employers have paid out over $1.4 billion in the last 10 years in unemployment insurance taxes. But undocumented New Yorkers can't access unemployment insurance typically um, and haven't benefited from that money. So across multiple uh, areas of relief, um, the federal level, state level, undocumented workers in particular have been unable to access that support. And that's leaving out about uh, half a million of New York City's residents. You also report, though, that legal immigrants have been hesitant to apply for some of these benefits. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I think in part, it's, it's the effect on those million households that have a mixed immigration status. There's been such a chilling effect in recent years, uh, in particular, the public charge rule. Many uh, immigrant serving organizations told us has really prevented immigrant families, even those that have one family member with documented status, from accessing uh, any kind of supportive programs, from being willing to make their names and addresses public or available to, uh, to government. They haven't been seeking out support and where support does exist, They've been incredibly and I think understandably reluctant to access it. So that's having an effect even on those families where, at least on paper, their immigration status should protect them. The New York City schools closed because of the pandemic and they'll reopen in the fall, but on a different kind of schedule. What's the impact been on immigrant communities with the schools being closed? Well, the disruption in the schools has really taken, I think, a disproportionate toll on immigrant families as well, for at least a couple of reasons. One, a lot of organizations told us about the multi-generational households that they serve, and that in normal times, you never had both parents and children and grandparents, maybe an aunt, maybe an uncle, a cousin or others, all there at one time. Everybody was working. Everybody was at school. Um, it was possible to make it work, even in a cramped you know, one or two bedroom apartment. That's not the case when uh, when the schools are closed. And that will continue to be a challenge in the fall. A lot of families just don't have access to broadband internet. They don't have an internet connected device at home, or they only have one. And it's uh, a competition among all of the family members to be able to use that single device. As of last year, there were nearly half a million households that lacked broadband access at home in New York City, uh, including about a third of all Hispanic households in New York. So this really presents a huge challenge when the only way that you can stay in school is to at least part of the week be, uh, be enrolled online. Well, the other aspect that we heard about was uh, the challenge of being able to balance the competing needs of children and parents with their educations. A lot of parents have been enrolled in uh, ESOL classes, uh, English for Speakers of Other Languages, and we heard multiple stories of parents who dropped out of their ESOL classes so that their children could use the only internet-connected device in the household to be able to finish the school year back in May. So even in the fall, if school ends up with some uh, days of the week in class and others where you're at home, it's going to present this unequal burden on a lot of immigrant families. 
One of the enduring narratives of migration in this country is that the children of immigrants will have better outcomes than their parents, and it's really all about, you know, education. How much does this put these families back? Is this a moment that you can catch up, or do you see this as a long-term problem in these families? Well, for a lot of families, I think the common ground has always been resiliency, the ability to withstand all kinds of economic shocks, to travel hundreds or thousands of miles just to seek out a better life, and ultimately to put in the hard work and the determination necessary to succeed in, in this country. In a very real and deep way, I don't think that's going to change. I think we'll still see immigrant communities demonstrating phenomenal resiliency here in New York City. But at least in the short term, I think we're dealing with uh, what is a potential catastrophe. Certainly, the impact in even just one generation or a micro generation of falling behind in school. We know that English language learners are far less likely, for example, to graduate from high school in New York than their peers who speak English as a first language. If you lose even one semester of progress, that can really derail uh, your, your future prospects. And I think we are starting to see that already. The other element of this crisis, I think that's particularly devastating for the long-term impacts on immigrant communities, is that uh, immigrants need this emergency cash relief now to be able to bounce back as the economy recovers. But if immigrant families have lost their jobs and may not have jobs to go back to for months or years or even at all, the prospect of falling behind in rent and ending up with uh, mounting debts means that many immigrants may ultimately decide the better option is to leave a city as expensive as New York, even though it's a city that's also offered so many opportunities in the past. Your report makes a number of recommendations uh, for improving the situation for, for the immigrant communities of New York. Can you tell us about uh, several of those recommendations? Sure. Well, first and foremost, uh, immigrant families, especially families with undocumented workers, need emergency cash relief now. Um, they have now gone over uh, four months without any form of relief uh, in most cases, and, uh, and it's just not a tenable situation. Understandably, that money would be best served coming from the federal government. But obviously, New York can't afford to wait. I think there's a couple of other things that the city and the state can do right now as well. Certainly something like the rent relief program that was launched needs to be able to serve undocumented families as well. It's, it's a moral imperative. A couple of other things that I think are going to be critical for the recovery for, for immigrants moving forward. One is that trusted organizations need to be part of the solution. We mentioned the schools previously, and one of the solutions potentially in the fall is to open up other community spaces so that uh, parents have childcare even when their children aren't in school. I think a great option there will be the city's library systems, which are uniquely trusted by immigrant communities, uh, but will need the resources to be able to provide that new childcare role moving forward. The last thing I'd mention is that further investments in adult basic literacy and, uh, and basic education are going to be essential. A lot of immigrants, especially those in the most vulnerable jobs in our city's economy, may not have work to return to. And helping those folks be able to access the job opportunities that may yet be created in the future will mean ESOL, but also bridges from ESOL into job training that's aligned with parts of the economy that may be better positioned to recover. Uh, all of this together is going to be necessary to give immigrant New Yorkers a fair shot at participating in this recovery. 
Some people might say, look, most of the impacts you're describing, the harms that are being visited on, on immigrant communities are a function of the undocumented status uh, of immigrants and that maybe federal dollars and state dollars and local dollars shouldn't be going to people who are not authorized to be in the country, but ought to be preserved for citizens and, and lawfully present immigrants uh, when there's a, a scarcity of, of money and programs. What's your response to that? Well, I think it's really a myth that uh, undocumented workers drag down the U.S. economy. On the contrary, you know, study after study has demonstrated the immense benefits of immigrants in our workforce across the board, including undocumented immigrants. It seems pretty clear to me that we would fully harness the benefits of uh, our undocumented workforces by creating a pathway to citizenship, bringing people into this country's political process, into this country's economic process, to be able to fully realize the benefits that undocumented workers do provide. I would also add that undocumented workers do pay taxes. They do contribute directly to this country. They, as I mentioned before, contribute through their employers to unemployment benefits that they themselves never get to, to reap. So in so many ways, we see that undocumented workers, along with certainly immigrant workers more broadly, not only contribute to the city's economic well-being, but they pay back uh, far more than they take. And yet when we, they really need the support to be able to get through a crisis, that helping hand is not there for them. For some people, that argument still doesn't sit well. Everybody's hurting in the country through this pandemic. Is there something about the New York economy that you can point to that says, if you don't support these people, there will be more economic pain in the city? Well, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, the, the largest category that uh, I think is uh, of New Yorker that's being left out right now are really these mixed status households. It's really not so simple as there are undocumented workers, there are immigrants, and these are discrete categories from one another. And the reality is that for about a third of all of the immigrant households, immigrants in New York, their households are mixed status, and it's a complicated picture. There are children who are citizens, but parents who are not. There's a partner who's a citizen and, and their partner who is not. And, uh, and that poses a major psychological toll on families when they realize that they're uniquely vulnerable to a crisis like this. And yet, you know, having worked hard their entire lives, they can't actually get a little bit of support when they're on the ropes. But that would have an immensely damaging effect on New York City uh, more broadly, not least of which because immigrants are so vital for so many industries that have been proven to be absolutely essential in this crisis. Um, healthcare certainly being one of them, you know, the janitors and the cashiers, the grocery store workers, the people who work in transportation and warehousing, all of whom have kept New Yorkers safe kept us connected to the goods and services we need just to survive during this crisis, and most of which are industries that are disproportionately where, uh, where immigrants work, including undocumented immigrants. And to, to not respect contributions that those workers have made to protect all of us, to keep us safe and to keep our economy moving in this crisis really feels like a deep moral failing. That's it for this episode of Entry Denied, and for our series, We'd like to thank our production assistants for the series, Matt Cusick, Cassidy Giordano, Monica Gomez, Aaron Johnson, Anna Ramirez-Navarro, and Camilla Figueroa-Restrepo. Sahil Ansari is our producer and engineer, and Eli Elenikov composed our music. Special thanks to Catherine McGann, our production manager, and Golda Arthur, 
our podcast guru who helped us conceive this series and took us through our first hesitant steps. Check out our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com and you'll find resources to help you go even deeper into some of these issues. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us and leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for Entry Denied. We'll be back with a new season in the fall. See you then, Alex. See you then, Deb.